found myself really troubled by how easily you can build a system that punishes people permanently and permanently disadvantages them. And then the question becomes, how do you undo it? I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell ebooks and audiobooks, and we build technology that encourages people to spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Copone Conversation. My guest today is J.L. Richardson. She's a writer, a broadcaster who some listeners might recognize from her book reviews on CBC Radio 1's interview show Q. She's a festival impresario, and she joins me today to talk about her new book, Gutter Child. It's a dystopian novel that speaks in fresh, unsettling ways to our current cultural moment as we ask ourselves what we owe one another. J.L. Richardson, welcome to Kobo. Oh, thanks for having me. Tell me about J.L. Richardson growing up. What kind of kid was she? So growing up, I mean, I grew up in a household. My dad was a professional football player before I was born. And I only say that because my family is very much sports minded. That's what our house is, what it's about, constantly watching football, sporting events of all kind. So to me, that's really what defines my childhood is is spending time with family, largely around sports, watching them on TV. And were you a football family or was it anything with a ball, a stick, you know, a running person? Football was definitely like primary, particularly college football, actually. Mm-hmm. But we also really big into basketball and would watch anything like Olympics were, you know, the house shuts down during the Olympics, Summer Olympics in particular. And I played sports as well, but I was the youngest of three. And so I was also interested in the arts. I was the one who got into theater and was kind of a book nerd. I would I would read a fair bit. My mom would take me to the bookstore. I'd buy books. I'd read them in like a day, a week, whatever it took. And so I sort of had these two worlds that I was living in, but very much defined by family and and being together as a family. We're all about both reading and writing lives here at Coboom Conversation. So tell me about you as a reader when you were younger. What were you into? So this is really embarrassing. I am not... Excellent. (laughs) I'm horrified to admit this, but hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So very uh, Christian home as well. So I was reading the Bible a lot, but also going and reading a lot of Civil War romance novels. Oh, interesting. Yes. And, you know, as a Black woman reading those kinds of books, I did not see the irony at all. I was just interested. (laughs) Yeah. I was that unaware, that clueless. I was pretty, you know, for all that we were watching in sports, we were not talking about politics and history very much at home. Got it. So I was really fascinated by, I loved romance. Like I just loved reading romance. And for whatever reason, there was this whole series and it was like the, the, the civil bride or, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, (laughs) (laughs) The Courageous Bride. There was like this whole series and they were all brides, which makes me kind of nauseous now. Of course. But at the time, I just could not stop reading them. And I I moved into other kinds of romance, but that was largely what I was reading until about grade 10 or 11. And that's when I started to move into classics. I started to get really kind of interested. Crime and Punishment was a book I read in grade 11 that I was kind of obsessed with, both from a literary perspective and just from reading, just the enjoyment of reading. And so that sort of defined my, my high school started to be where I started to look for like good writing and things that were really being talked about and discussed. And that's when I started to think about politics a little bit more. And if you were to look back now, 
What tipped that over for you? What made you start to dig into literature? Not that there's anything wrong with sticking with romance, but there's often a person or an event (laughs) or something that kind of bumps people into a different kind of genre or a different kind of book. Yeah, I think around grade nine, grade 10, I started to become really interested in reading, not just to like get away Mm -hmm. uh, or escape. I was really interested in what was being said. I remember reading Stone Angel in high school and it was something about, I I remember recognizing in Crime and Punishment and Stone Angel, a disconnect between the other kinds of reading I had been doing and a quality that I was particularly interested in. And then as a student who was getting more and more interested in English and realizing that that was kind of where I wanted to spend a lot of time, even in university, I became interested in reading things that you were quote unquote supposed to be reading. And so that also started to create really important questions about good writing and books you're supposed to read versus books you're not really supposed to read and starting to pay attention and notice like what kind of storytellers I was reading versus what I wasn't. And I would say those questions were sitting on like the very edge of my mind. I I Mm -hmm. kind of was thinking about them, but not too deeply. And when I went into university, that's when I was really aware of the questions that I had been having all through high school about race and identity and the way that books were shaping what I was understanding about race and identity. And so I think it was sort of, I I can't identify specifics, Mm -hmm. but certainly high school was this shift towards quality writing in a particular way, and then also questions about race and identity and the connection between those two things. And university was where I got to dig into that. If memory serves, the Ontario core English literature curriculum of the 1990s was not the most diverse that you could experience. Were you aware of that at the time? Or did it kind of come to you in retrospect? I wasn't aware of it at the time. I wasn't aware of it at the time. And I was very much, I was very convinced in that way that's terribly problematic that I was just reading good literature, that this is what good literature was. Uh And that somehow that meant that my stories, the stories that would be about my family, my history, my ancestry, were just absent. I was realizing that, but not understanding how to fix it. And I remember in university reading I read Dion Brand and I read um, Angelique, which is a play by uh, Lorena Gale. And I remember reading these stories and suddenly recognizing the problem, you know, and like that was to me the light bulb moment. Right. And I've become really passionate about talking about those things because university is expensive and not everyone gets to go. And so the fact that I didn't have that opening, that awakening, that moment until I was in university and how significant that shaped my career, my writing, everything really makes me passionate about changing what kids are reading in high school. Going back a little bit in your personal history, from my limited and completely unscientific experience, kids land on a spectrum. You know, at one end are kids who consume and inhabit stories. They love to listen. They love to read them. And then at the other end are kids who, as soon as they figure out what stories are, immediately go, oh, that's what a story is? Let me tell you a story. Like, Where did you land on that line? Were you a story reader or were you a storyteller? I was entirely a story reader. I didn't really think about writing at all until later in high school when there was like an English course and I just wanted to take every English course. So I took a writing course, but I had never really conceived of myself as like a writer of stories. I had written in a journal. That would be like the most that I had seen myself in terms of writing. And so it wasn't until 
I remember reading Blackberry Sweet Juice by Lawrence Hill, which is stories about people who are biracial. And I remember reading that and being like, wait, people are interested in stories that like I've lived. Such a fantastic collection. (laughs) This is, I'm interested in them. But when I realized other people were interested in them, it was a really powerful moment because I thought, you know, I I do have things that I want to say and things that I've been thinking about and things that I've read that I want to speak to. And so it wasn't until, you know, university and beyond that I really started thinking about writing as a possibility for me. Tell me about the events of the steps that led to the writing of your first book, The Stone Thrower. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's really what happened next. I was in university. I was uh, taking theater. I was writing plays. And that was sort of where I saw myself fitting. I was exploring history and identity and This was where, you know, that's what university was for me, a place where I was percolating on ideas. And as I was doing that, my brother, who had gone to the same university my father had gone to, was really interested in making sure my dad's story got written. And so he was actually doing some initial like reconnaissance. (laughs) He was uh, recording interviews with coaches and doing all these things. And at some point he realized like, you know what, I don't really want to write this or do this. And you seem to be spending a lot of time (laughs) in that area. So why don't you write it? Because it turns out writing a book is a lot of work. <laughs> yes, it is. Thanks, brother. And brothers are really good at figuring <laughs> out how to get siblings to do things. Older brother, younger sister, you go ahead. Magic. And so around the time that I finished university, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, really. But I was thinking that this book was something I should do. And so over the course of the next few years, I was trying to figure out how to make it work. And eventually I found a grad school program where in order to graduate, you had to finish a book. And that seemed like the best way for me to actually complete it. And at the time, that was my sole mission was to write this book about my dad's life. I felt it was incredibly important um, that people know his story. He was the first black quarterback to win the Grey Cup. He's the only undefeated quarterback in NCAA history. He's not in the Hall of Fame and yet he should be. And so I wanted to write about some of these things that had happened in his life and the way that his life had shaped mine. We learn a lot about him from your book. It's called The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life. Mm -hmm. We also learned a lot about you and your thoughts around identity and heritage and family. What was that process like for you? How much of it was self-discovery? How much of it was discovery of your father? To me, the stories seemed incredibly linked. Mm -hmm. You know, the story about my father's life and his successes is extremely impressive. You know, if someone were to write a traditional biography of his life, you would be fascinated uh, by where he grew up, by what he was able to accomplish in high school, you know, all the things. His story is incredible on its own. But for me, what was particularly interesting was that I was, you know, approaching my 30s and had no idea about a lot of those stories. I had no real knowledge of history or how my family sat in history. And I thought it was fascinating that someone could accomplish this much and do all these things and yet keep it from their family in in a certain way, hold these stories back. And so to me, the book is very much about finding out what really happened in his life and about understanding how what happened in his life changes the way, you know, I raise my own son. And that to me seemed like the book I was supposed to write. I think a lot of people could write a biography of my dad's life, but the book I was supposed to write was how we interacted together. And it seems like memoirs about our parents are kind of like a jack-in-the-box. Like you're never quite sure what's going to pop out. Mm -hmm. 
Did you find anything along the process of researching and writing that you really didn't expect that came at you, you know, literally from left field? I would say a lot of the book actually came at me from left field. There's one significant moment in the story. You know, I'm 28, 29 years old. I'm going down to my dad's hometown and we go into this uh, high school reunion and I'm going to meet all of his high school friends for the first time. And I walk in and everyone is white. And I'm just floored. Like, I will never forget that moment because I was, I thought I was in the twilight zone. And I was so overwhelmed that the whole time things, people are introducing themselves and we're all getting happy and I'm just pretending everything's fine. And I remember going back to the hotel where my brother was, he wasn't able to go. And I was like, Damon, they're all white. They're all white, you know? And to me, that seems like such a critical piece. So there was lots of things, but that one was the most critical because all my friends were white in high school and my dad had never, ever really mentioned it except when we were watching Remember the Titans and he was like, that was like my high school. And I was like, okay. You know, there were so many things I, I thought he was talking about. It wasn't that, you know, he had in the 60s been going to a high school where he was one of three black students. When you were approaching writing a memoir, mm-hmm. were there authors that you looked to? And I'm thinking either in terms of here are lessons that I want to keep in mind or, mm-hmm. wow, I want to make sure this book is not like that. <laughs> you, you can choose either side. <laughs> For me, and someone shared this recently, and I, I'm stealing it. I wish I could remember who so I could properly attribute it. But they were talking about how each of their books has mentors. And I think that's been true for me. For every book I write, there's sort of mentors, books that I use that sort of influence the content, the shape, etc. For sure, Lawrence Hill's Blackberry Sweet Juice was a really big influencer not just in style, but I I would say it was like the book that made me realize what I wanted to focus on in the story and how little I understood about what it meant to be Black. But I think in terms of shape and structure, I was actually reading a book by Kathy Osler called Lost. And it's a totally different story. It's, uh, you know, her brother goes missing and she goes on this search to find her brother who's gone missing at sea. And the thing that I took away from that book that I treasure is that the, that you can tell stories, creative nonfiction and memoirs in such a wild and creative way. You can incorporate fictionalized moments. You can incorporate news. You can incorporate songs. You can incorporate all kinds of things into the narrative of a nonfiction piece. And so that book was a book that helped me figure out a number of different ways to incorporate, you know, the newspaper articles that were written about my dad when he was playing football were incredibly written. They have this bizarre, wonderful storytelling element. And I, I wanted to include them in the narrative of the story. And so Kathy Oster's Lost gave me all these tips about how to do that. And so it let you break out of memoir as reportage into something yeah. more creative. I am not very much. I mean, I don't even know if I'll go back to writing nonfiction in long form like that, because I really like the creativity of fiction, the different ways that you can tell stories. And I knew the only way I was going to write nonfiction is if I could incorporate some of that creativity into a memoir. Now, you are a member of what may be the tiniest minority of all. You are <laughs> a person working full time in the field of books who isn't a publisher isn't a bookseller, isn't a professor or a librarian, but you've assembled this fascinating and totally unique career in the book world in addition to being an author. Can we break down some of the components of that a bit? (laughs) You are the book reviewer for Q, the national CBC Radio 1 interview show that is probably the closest thing that we have to 
a national conversation. Tell me about how that started. That was a bizarre, very reluctant process. I actually did not want the job. (laughs) (laughs) I think Tom knows this, but this is a secret. So I had been a, a fan of Shad, who had been the host of Q. And when Shad was moved on and Tom replaced him, I was very angry. And I was specifically angry at Tom. I had never met Tom. I didn't know him, but I was just angry. And so... This was clearly his fault. (laughs) So when they invited me, they're like, you know, we want you to try out for this part. And I thought, okay, well, okay, I'll go. But like, I don't really want it. So I'll just hope somebody else gets it. And maybe another opportunity will arise. I don't really like Tom. And so I went to my first audition and I fell in love with Tom on the first day. And he's just like the kindest soul. We both love Law and Order. Uh, we just got along right, right away from the get-go. And, and from there, I was just sucked in. I mean, I think I, at this point, we talk about it a lot. I think I'm the longest standing columnist that has been on the show with him. Like I've been on since almost the beginning of his time there. And, um, you know, we just, we just love each other. <laughs> Let's go back to one thing there. How do you audition to be a book reviewer? Well, so they, they sort of give you like a test day where you pick a book, you come on, you talk with Tom and you just say, essentially see like how you vibe together. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were auditioning multiple people. And so it was going to be like, who was the best fit. But when I got there and, and I realized I was the only person. And so it was more of just like a, let's see if she's good at this kind of thing. And uh, then they offered me the job afterwards. And the CBC has this history of being maybe the only media in Canada that can substantially change the course of a book's trajectory. And this goes back to Peter Zosky's Morningside and Sheila Rogers and Writers and Company and Canada Reads. So did that history impact you at all as you were looking at your role as being Q's book reviewer? So I take that role on Q really seriously. And I really have tried hard to think really carefully about the books that I cover because I do, we call it the book bump. So occasionally after I talk about a book, there'll be a bump in sales. And so when you understand that you're so specifically impacting and shaping book sales and what I refer to as the book economy, it's really important to weigh that. And I think one of the challenges we've had in book publishing is people haven't thought about that a lot in the past. They haven't thought about what happens when you recommend certain kinds of books and you don't recommend other kinds of books. So I've, I've really, more than thinking about the history, I've tried to think of where the future of, of CBC is and should go. Um, and I've been trying to really shake things up with the picks I, I make and the things that I select. I've tried to really think about a range of storytellers. I try and think a lot about Canadians and independent sellers in ways that maybe other people don't. So yeah, I I think about it a lot. And what's your method of discovery? How do you find the books that you pick? Well, can I say it's definitely not through email. So don't email me books that you think I should cover because that's almost a guarantee for no. Got it. I, I almost always get some sort of personal email afterwards. Like, would you like to cover my book? So where I, I look in a lot of different places, I look all over. So I usually, I used to, before the pandemic, get lots of books sent to me. And that was a big um, deciding factor. But I try and pay attention to what's going on. I'm the executive director at the Festival of Literary Diversity or Fold. And so the good thing about that job is I get to find out about books that are coming down the pipeline. And so I try and pay attention to what's coming. And then I try and sort of strategically 
create a range over the course of the year so that I'm not just doing literary fiction and I'm not just doing, you know, certain gender or certain racialized communities or, or non. I'm trying to find that, that balance. You mentioned Fold, and you're the executive director of this fascinating literary festival. Tell me all about it. So Fold was my birth child. <laughs> you know, it was the thing when I came out with Stone Thrower, um, when the book came out, I started to see some challenges that existed for me as a writer, but also that likely existed for other authors. You know, I thought if I'm writing a memoir about a famous professional athlete and I'm having trouble getting into literary festivals and getting um, picked up by radio reviewers, etc., um, how much harder is it for someone, particularly from a marginalized community, to get noticed? I love literary festivals. I was going to them, and I was not seeing a lot of diversity. So I think that for me, Fold was about creating a space for myself and for others. Um, and it was also, I'm from, I live in Brampton now, and Brampton didn't really have any events that sort of drew people from outside Brampton. And most people I knew had never been here, even if they lived very close. So I wanted to create sort of a destination festival where, you know, people would come from all over to hear writers talk and where the writers would be selected based on their experiences and their writing. So a lot of times marginalized writers, uh, writers of color, queer writers, were being called to talk about what it's like to be a queer writer or what it's like to be a black writer. And I wanted to talk about plot and craft. And, you know, so I wanted to create a festival where both of those options were available to our authors. And that's been the best work and experience for me as a writer and a reader was, is building Fold. Now you Talked about fold in the in the past tense, which now has me you know concerned. Is, uh, is it's okay? Still good, there. good, good. It's all good. We're alive and well. Yeah, but what was it like running a literary festival in a pandemic year? Well, we were one of the first festivals that went online, and you know, I I've been recognized by a number of folks as you know doing something brave and doing something you know innovative. But at the time, I just thought, you know, I have three options. I can cancel, I can postpone, or I can do it online. And canceling and postpone, well, canceling really would negatively affect the authors. And that was a big factor for like that not being an option. Postponing would have been difficult for us, actually, as an organization to, you spend your whole year building around one event. So to move it three months back affects that current year, affects the year after, you know, all of that. So I don't find it as generous a transition. <laughs> you know, it was quite in some ways selfish, but it was more about making sure it continues. And one of the things that seemed really important was, you know, in a pandemic where everything was in chaos, where marginalized folks were more at risk, it seemed even more important to have the fold. And that became the really push the final push factor, you know, we can't cancel, we can't postpone because maybe we need this more than ever right now. Has this impacted how you're planning this next year? Yes, this next year is definitely going to be online again. But what happened last year is you sort of just reacted, right? We took whatever we could from whatever we, because we'd already confirmed our authors, we'd already had a schedule. So it was just an adaptation of what's already there. This year, I'm particularly excited, like, itchy excited because we get to build a virtual festival. We get to build with virtual festival in mind. And I think it's going to really excite people. I think it's going to be innovative in a very different way. And I'm, I'm just hopeful it has the same kind of reach 
I, it's going to be good. <laughs> Before we get into your latest book, you have just described a very busy life with a lot of moving parts. What does the writing routine look like? How do you fit write a whole book into the midst of all of the other things that you're doing? It's messy. I'm a particularly organized person in some ways. So I, I'm good at building systems that are quite organized. Um, but I'm also a mess in terms of like, I'm all over the place. So it's a difficult balance. I will say two things are really critical to being able to plan a festival and, and be a book reviewer and write books. One is my full team is incredible. The staff I have of two folks who work with me, for me, however you want to say that, um, and they are the best. Uh, Amanda LaDuke and Ardo Omar, are they're experts in their own what they do, but they're just phenomenal people to work with. And they, they carry me literally parts of the year. <laughs> I also think it's just about realizing that writing isn't something I do like I choose to do. It's something I have to do. So it comes to me and I, I just write. It's a bit chaotic when um, Fold is really busy and writing deadlines are happening at the same time. That's the worst time of year. But generally speaking, I find time to write and I don't do the like I write every day for an hour. I generally work better when I write consistently for, you know, 10 days in a row or for a week. And so I try and just shift the balance. Sometimes I overwork at Fold and sometimes I overwork with writing. Um, but I'm basically always overworking is probably something you can take away that's not quite healthy, but it's is still what I do. And did that change during the time of COVID? Because as, as we've talked to different authors, we've had some people have said, you know, pandemic horrors aside, best thing ever, I put my head down, you know, new books came out. And then others who were like, I've been paralyzed for months, like I just haven't been able to kind of get new things down on the page. How has your routine changed? Or have you been able to just like press through? Yeah. I wrote my next book rather obsessively as soon as I submitted Gutter Child. So that happened quicker than the first draft of Gutter Child for sure. And I do have like, I would say draft two. It's not in a great shape, but it's done. So I think the writing wasn't a problem. The more difficult problem during quarantine and COVID has been preserving time to myself. I consider the first months of COVID to be some of the most challenging. For someone who's quite privileged, those were the most challenging for me because I, it was like when my son was first born, there was just not a moment I could guarantee that would be my own. You know, my son was up and he was, needed my help and I needed fold and I, all these things. And there was just every hour that you got to yourself was, was negotiated and fought for. You, you, cart, mm -hmm. you spread out your life and said, no. Something was getting <laughs> neglected. <laughs> yeah. And whereas normally, you know, he has six hours that he's at school. I can figure out those hours on my own. He has three hours at night where before I go to bed and he's in bed. So I can, I can do things. Um, but I just, it was just a wild time of chaos. So that was the hardest. And I was, you know, planning a festival, finishing deadline dates. I was trying to find the ending for Gutter Child. That, so it was all these things that felt very stressful and important, not to mention Black Lives Matter, um, which I think for me felt even worse than quarantine mm -hmm. because there was all this like emotional pressure that I was feeling and all these people who were asking of me. And I just, I was actually grateful for quarantine in that moment because I didn't have to see people and I didn't always answer their messages. <laughs> 
So I had a bit of control over that, Got but it. it felt emotionally quite stressful. So all of this brings us to Gutter Child. Mm-hmm. And to open it up for people, tell me about Elamina and the world that she lives in. Mm-hmm. So the main character in Gutter Child is Elamina, and she has grown up on the mainland, um, but she, as you realize in the first chapter, is a gutter child, and you don't really know what that means or what all is involved in that. But the the important thing, I think, is that Elamina uh, discovers that she's part of a project that sort of took her out of the gutter as an experiment. And now because her mother has passed away, she her adoptive mother has passed away, she's coming back into what's known as the gutter system. And she's having to kind of figure out what that actually means. What does it mean that she's a gutter child? What does it mean that she's surrounded by other gutter children? How is she different from those gutter children? Is she different from those gutter children? And so for me, she's this pivotal character in deciding and determining what's happening in this world and how to navigate your way through it. It's important for the people listening to understand that when we're talking about someone being a gutter child, that isn't just a figurative term. This is, you know, being from the gutter, being Mm -hmm. in the gutter is being part of a structure, uh, like a, you know, a social construct that kind of is the, is the core of the book. And there is this in the future? Is it in the alternate past? Where do you kind of set it? Yeah, so this is a great, this is, I mean, one of the questions with the dystopia, one of the reasons I actually loved following writing Stone Thrower with writing Gutter Child is I feel like they're two very opposite uh, situations. One, you're writing truth and you're researching, and the other one, you're creating everything. And, and when you're creating a dystopia, you are creating everything. You're creating the world, the rules, the laws, the people, what everything looks like when everything is set is, is yours to decide when you're making a dystopia, uh, when you're writing dystopia. And that was to me the, the magic and the excitement, but it's also kind of overwhelming to have every choice like, entirely in your hands. You know, if you write a novel and it's set in Chicago in 1960, there's there's a set of rules you're going to abide by. There's a set of things that are true. You can break them, but like you have something to start from. With this, it was like <laughs> uh, I could do anything. So for me, there's not a specific date that's specified in the novel. You won't find like this is anywhere of any year. But I was definitely thinking about the time frame I had researched in writing The Stone Thrower, um, which was the 60s and 70s. I was thinking about America and Canada. I was also thinking about Africa and the continent of Africa and the different countries that exist there and sort of the history that has affected um, African countries as well. And so I was trying to the driving question behind it was really what happens when you grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? Who builds that world? Who lives in that world? How do they navigate their way through that world? That was the real question. And it was those stories, histories, and things I had researched from, you know, the, the 1950s, 60s, 70s that were really shaping the, some of the direction of the book. One of the things that's so interesting about dystopias is that they illuminate by stripping away things that we take for granted. You know, the characters get put into a more extreme environment in the future or in an alternate history. But in Gutter Child, there are parts of the story that for an indigenous reader, for an African reader, for a lot of racialized readers today, probably feel really familiar today. So how was dystopia useful to you as a storyteller for 
you know, illuminating themes that you know, we're running into right now. Yeah, I think I think it's it's both touching and also troubling when people can recognize so easily in gutter child circumstances that are happening now. Um, because for me, um, there was this moment with the Trayvon Martin case, who's the boy who was shot um, walking home uh, with his iced tea and Skittles. Um, and there was a moment when uh, his killer was acquitted. And my dad, I was really surprised. And my dad said, of course, he was acquitted. You know, the laws were built to protect someone like George Zimmerman, and not to protect Trayvon. And so for me, Gutter Child was about being the person who was able to create the rules, much like our founding fathers build the Confederate, all those things. I was the person who got to make the rules. And I made these rules and then had my characters walk through them. And what's, what troubled me was how difficult it became for them to live, to exist, and to make choices. And so when I look at people who, who see themselves and their countries, their experiences in Gutter Child, I think it's terrifying because it means, you know, our whole system was built against you, against us in some ways. And so dystopia is really powerful in that way. I think for a reader, but also in this case for me as a writer, I found myself really troubled by how easily you can build a system that punishes people permanently and permanently disadvantages them. And then the question becomes, how do you undo it? And you know, I think one of the things we see right now happening in the world is, you know, it's built very well <laughs> to protect itself, to make sure um, certain people can't actually make change that easily. And there are so many historical echoes in that book, whether it's apartheid or residential schools, mm -hmm. rewritings of history, slave uprisings. It's fascinating to me to hear that you sort of constructed the book like a destruction test. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to create the system and then let's see what happens when someone tries to live their life in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that the debt. So one of the things that's really important in the book is that uh, gutter children have a debt. They're born with debt. And the debt can be passed on generation to generation. And this was a really key principle for me because I was fascinated with how class and poverty and debt seem to be this generational problem and people who live it know it can identify it people who don't question it blame people for it and so nothing changes because the people who are in debt don't have the power the means the resources to do it and the people who have the power the means and the resources don't understand it don't care or blame the people who are living in it for being the problem and so yeah this was my experiment to figure out you know what what happens? How does how do we get to these places where we're so far apart that one group is so oppressed and no one seems to care or be willing to do anything about it? And so that's my destruction experiment, I guess. <laughs> there are a lot of dystopian books that focus around class and hierarchy. You know, we have Hunger Games, we have Divergent or Gender, like Handmaid's Tale. You know, there are hundreds of we're downtrodden in the future and they're up there in the gleaming towers being evil, but you're tackling other issues that are you know, both personal to you, current to the moment. Was that something that you felt like you had to treat with care as you went into it, or was it just coming out and you were able to capture it easily? 
I think it was difficult because I think I wanted to, I mean, one of the things you see in Hunger Games, there's very clear good guys and bad guys. There's very clear sense of like who we should be fighting for. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really wanted to happen in Gutter Child, I wanted that to be less clear. I wanted it to be. And it gets ambiguous, <laughs> like right from the beginning. <laughs> You're not sure if she's actually going to be a good person through this. No. And I, I don't think in our current system, our current society, it's clear to see like who all the good guys are, or who all the bad guys or girls are. And I think what's tricky, too, is it means that when change comes, there's also disagreement about what that change should be and what that change should look like. And so I wanted to explore both how a kind of division, how a kind of rebellion or a failed rebellion, how it changes people and, and creates division amongst the very people who maybe need to unite the most. So that was really important. And those were things I was weighing. I was also thinking about mainlanders who in the story are the people with power. And I wanted to understand how people who believe themselves to be doing good things when they're not really doing good things or they're not being helpful. It was really important for me as a writer to try and create characters who weren't overtly bad or who at the very least would consider themselves to be good people. Because I think in, the, in, in racialized conversations, oftentimes um, what's most frustrating is people who believe themselves to be helpful, who are actually quite harmful and who are actively working within the system for the system. When did this book first start to take shape for you? So as soon as I finished Stone Thrower, I, I started to think about it. I didn't know what I was doing, to be quite honest. I didn't know how to write a novel, really. And I definitely didn't know how to write a dystopia specifically. So um, I had, Elamina was very clear to me. It was very clear the debt concept was, was quite uh, an important part and, and part of it early on. Um, the term gutter child was really early on. But it took me four years to really figure out what I was writing and where I was going with it. And it took me eight years in total to write. And I didn't figure out the ending until about a month before it went to print. Because what better time <laughs> to figure out the end of a dystopian novel than when what? you get to live in one. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> when you're living in a dystopia, suddenly endings become a lot more clear. This is easy. As we were talking about before, you know, books have mentors. And dystopian fiction certainly has this, this rich you know, panoply to draw from. Were there books that you reached to or authors that you thought about as you were as you were tackling this? So the book that definitely was the first shaper of this novel, long before I knew I was going to write it, um, is Sula by Toni Morrison. And it's a dystopia. Uh, it was probably the first dystopia I ever read or the first novel I read where I, I recognized it to be a dystopia. Um, and it was just, I remember it starts with, there's a bottom and a hill and people are living on the hill and then people are living on the bottom and they switch by. And I'm, this is a fascinating critique of, you know, segregation and racism. <laughs> like, and I was just like right away. And I, I didn't know you could do that. And so it was always in the back of my mind that that story. And then when I finished Stone Thrower and knew I kind of wanted to write a story about segregation, but also about class and colonialism and how colonialism has shaped classism and, and a number of other problems. I also picked up Hunger Games because I think for me, Hunger Games was the dystopia that affected me the most. So I think Hunger Games was the dystopia that affected me the most. So I went to it to try and figure out how you unpack a world. 
you know, one of the things I didn't want to do was these major dumps of content where you sort of like explain everything and then here's a hundred years of history of, exactly. <laughs> of how we've gotten to where we are today. And so I, I, I looked to Hunger Games a little bit to figure out how they dropped content in and how you figure things out. And so it was a bit of a um, dystopian template that I, I, I turned to the most probably. And it is a one of the things that makes it such a fascinating book to read is the slow mental map that you accumulate of how does this work and how you know how is this structure wired together and why has it lasted as long as it has. So as you're watching the characters fight their way through this, that growing sense of just how all-encompassing this is, just how difficult this is to you know, for them, just continues to grow and grow and build right to the end. Mm-hmm. This feels like it might just be the beginning of a series. And, you know, we are booksellers. We like series. So is there <laughs> is there any chance we'll see another view into this world? So I am. The book that came right after this one was a, a sequel. So there is the potential for that. And I think regardless of what happens with it, I think I needed to write it. I think I, I'm still very much sitting in questions about hope, about what change looks like, about what change does to people, how it comes about. Um, I I still have lots of questions. And I think that um, the next book, if I get a chance to get it out there, will hopefully take me closer. We will all hope for that. (laughs) JL, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Jill Richardson. Her latest book is the novel Gutter Child. It and the other books we've talked about here along previous episodes of the show can be found at kobo.com slash conversation, or you can check the show notes. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You're listening to this now, so you already know how to do that. And leave us a review because it helps other readers to find us. Cobone Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.